I'm Alex. Do you know where your wallet is? Let me know whether this sounds familiar to you. You're talking to your friends, your co-workers, and your family about the digital transformation that is happening. You mentioned blockchain, you mentioned cryptocurrencies and crypto assets and how that's going to transform money and digital identity and all these other things. And they shut you down. They think that that future is either far-fetched or really far out there and it might not happen in our lifetime. The reality is that's far from the truth. There are many places and many countries in the world today that use cryptocurrencies, crypto assets as the foundational building blocks of their society. And that's exactly what we're going to cover today. Stay tuned. Welcome back everyone. Happy Memorial Day weekend. We have a really exciting episode today. We are interviewing Raul Romero. He is the founder of Yakira, a digital fundraising platform that enables Venezuelans access to basic resources with the use of blockchain technology. We'll get his insights on how cryptocurrencies and crypto assets are helping people today. We'll learn about the successes they've had so far and the impact they've been able to have to people's lives. The idea behind this episode was for Crypto Alley to showcase how cryptocurrencies are used in the world today to help people. People whose governments have failed them or whose governments don't support their livelihoods. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're ever in a situation where someone tells you cryptocurrency is a scam, Cryptocurrency will not change the world and it has no real world value. And as Raul will tell us in a few moments, that is not the case. Here's the interview with Raul. Raul, thanks for joining us. Uh, where does this podcast find you? Uh, so right now I'm in Gambier, Ohio. It's uh, middle of nowhere, Ohio. <laughs> is that where you're from? No, I'm from Caracas, Venezuela, but um, I'm here to go to college. Um, so I'm a rising senior at Kenyon College in Ohio. Uh, but yeah, very different from Caracas, uh, very different city. <laughs> well, if you can call this a city. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Caracas to um, Kenyon College. How'd you, uh, what, what was the path to Kenyon? I was actually 16 years old and I was, you know, there was this program that I was leading, uh, the youth municipal government in Venezuela. And I started, I was going school by school, trying to promote this like new institutional participation. It was something that I was creating at the moment. And one of the teachers told me about this high school program called UWC, UWC, um, which is United World College. Um, and it was an international high school program. And he told me, apply. He said actually that he wouldn't let me into the school to give the talk that I wanted to give, but he, told me about how I should apply to this international high school program. And, you know, I just, 
I didn't speak the language very well. I didn't speak English. I knew that the classes would be in English and I applied just, you know, out of like interest and knowing that, you know, this would be an incredible opportunity, but that I didn't necessarily have the skills then, but that they were very accommodating and that the whole point was that people from different parts of the world would go there. So I, I applied knowing that I didn't have the resources uh, and maybe not the, the skills, the English skills yet, but surprisingly out of a 500 people applicant pool, um, I was one of the five, uh, one of the nine students actually selected to go to UBC USA um, from Venezuela. Um, and then I was there for a couple of years in New Mexico, again, middle of nowhere, very, very uh, different from Caracas. And then after those two years, I came to Kenya and I've been really happy here, but I've also been very lucky to have all the opportunities that I've had. And uh, so that's a great story. How has uh, Kenyan been so far? What have you been involved in on campus? Is related? Are there any things at Kenyan that are kind of have pushed you towards uh, founding Yakira, which is what we'll touch on very soon. Yeah, so uh, you know, I think I think what I what I've liked the most about Kenyan is like the process of continuous discovery. I think they the whole like liberal arts philosophy is really great in, in terms of like teaching you not necessarily how to think but what to think about. And I'm sort of paraphrasing David Foster Wallace here uh, in a speech that he gave to Kenyan, but I think it's it's really important. Um, I think it's pushed me to explore things that I never thought I would be interested in exploring. Um, I started as a policy major, now I'm an international studies major, Chinese minor with an interest in tech and business. Like, you know what I mean? Uh, it, it's something I wasn't expecting that would take place and, and that would happen here. But but yeah, it's 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 sort of that that process of continuous self-discovery and and that's that's what I've liked the most. Also, Kenyon has a very, it's a small community, it's a small college, and you really get to know a lot of people. And a lot of the founding members of Yakeda are other Kenyan college students who are just like willing to put in the work. And even sometimes when you know we don't know all the answers, but but all like the effort and enthusiasm and and I felt like the community here has embraced a lot. Um, Yakeda and has supported a lot of the efforts that we're doing. So I'm very grateful for that. And 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 both for the opportunities and, and, and other founding members of Yakeda, but also that journey of continuous self-discovery that, that Kenya has allowed me to, to embark on. Yeah, I, uh, I also went to a liberal arts school. Um, I didn't necessarily have such a big move between majors, but the ability to take classes and different disciplines and you know, potentially discover a hobby, which, uh, which was the case for me uh, as far as music goes. And then just learning about things that uh, a statistics major would otherwise not learn about, I think is uh, invaluable really. And is so different from how education, uh, I thought education should work. But I wanted to specifically touch uh, on Yakira. So you've, um, it's really awesome for me to hear, even though, you know, you've, you had the two years in UWC and I have been almost uh, four years or three years in Kenyan, you've still had such a close connection to Venezuela and, you know, uh, you've, you, you spent a significant amount, amount of your free time uh, founding and uh, organizing and executing on Yakira. Uh, tell us a little bit about your motivation um, and what exactly you're working on. And, and thank you so much, Alex. And, and you know, 
this is something that we talked about and, and, and to give the, the listeners a little bit of background, we were both um, in California over summer working at, in a summer program. We were talking back and forth, Alex and I, about, about Yakera. And, and I, I, I think those, those conversations certainly like sparked uh, the idea and, and for Yakera to come forward. Why I think about Venezuela, I mean, you know, it's not only that I'm really passionate about the country that I've seen firsthand what's happened and, and that I've lived through things, but also my family's there, you know, our cheese shop that we had for over 15 years had to close down. Um, things have gotten uh, worse by the day. And, 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 you know, it's been really hard for me to put together the fact that I'm here in a school and a scholarship, and I'm very privileged to have, you know, food in the cafeteria uh, while my family has to line up for food in Venezuela, and that I have to put together a sense of peace, stability, with violence happening in the country um, um, that I have to put together the classes that I have to go to and, and knowing that my main responsibilities are school and, and yeah, my job and the things that I go do outside of school, but, but you know, relatively peaceful while, while sometimes my mom calls me telling, me telling me that she's gonna go to a protest and there's a military uprising that she doesn't know what's gonna happen in the protest. And it's, it's two very different realities. And it certainly inspires me to work really hard because I, I do wanna improve things. I, I do wanna have an impact in Venezuela. And it's my people, you know, I, I still feel very connected and I still feel like at some point I'm gonna go back and, and spend um, some time and live there again. Um, Again, I, I witnessed the decline. I witnessed a lot of what, what's happened. I, I you know, and, and this is a story that, that, you know, like going back to Venezuela, I, I left the country um, in 2016. And then I went back to the country, to, went back to Venezuela. And, and going and seeing the reality was so shocking. Um, seeing people having lost a lot of weight, like, understanding that I had gained a little bit of weight, putting my freshman 15 and be, that being seen as a symbol of status, that was so, such a shocking reality. And it just pushes me to, to keep on going forward. Um, to talk about Yaquera specifically, is that people in Venezuela don't have direct access to aid. Um, up until very recently, international organizations weren't allowed to operate in the country. Uh, people, according to the United Nations, over 7 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance in the country. And, and there's no way, there's no access to support. The other channels are controlled by the regime. Uh, those are channels that depend on political allegiance. Uh, 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 it depends on, on clientelism. Um, and, and it's actually used to promote the government party instead of actually serving the needs of the people. And while people are starving, there's no way to access support. So how Yekera came about and what it aims to do is to build a crowdfunding platform so that people in Venezuela can tell their stories and receive immediate support in their bank accounts using a decentralized network of, of peers in Venezuela that are willing to transfer the, the, the same amount of money. So to explain a little bit of how that works, how Yekera came about, is there's a, uh, an e-wallet in Venezuela. There's now several e-wallets, but one of them is AirTM. Um, and AirTM, which was actually founded in Mexico, started operating in Venezuela, solving the main issue that Venezuelans had. It was illegal to trade between currencies. And what they did is that they allowed people to connect with a stranger, like an Uber of currency, and exchange Venezuelan bolivars for US dollars, US dollars, for instance, from remittances for Venezuelan bolivars, and using a system of escrow that depended on individuals confirming whether the transactions in local currency had occurred to release 
the equivalent of US dollars into this other person's bank account, allowing them to transact internationally to use US dollars and to exchange between currencies. So they've been operating for a while. Actually, the regime has tried to shut them down several times. Uh, it's very, the access to the ATM page in Venezuela is still intermittent. That This year they were blocked, but uh, people have access using VPNs and sometimes the blocks aren't happening all at the same time. And sometimes people find loopholes to get and access the website. So what Yaqueda does is that we use, we give people the power to tell their stories. Um, and, and we use AirTM as our partner to deliver funds to people in US dollars that then they can cash out in local currency. So AirTM works as a sort of like Uber of currency, matching people who are seeking to do these exchanges. And for us, it's very flexible because it allows us to have decentralized transfers and allow individuals to dispose of the money and get the money in their bank accounts with a lot of flexibility. And it allows also reconceptualizes aid. Um, for so long, aid has been seen or support to people has been seen as a kilo of flour. It has been seen as uh, some objects that are tangible, but don't necessarily, that are very inefficient and don't necessarily need what people need. And yet, can I imagine as people having the dignity and agency to decide how to spend their money because who else knows how to meet their needs than the people who actually have the needs they are the ones who know they are the ones who have the needs and they know better how to satisfy no one who's donating knows better than the person who's receiving the money how to meet their needs and that's the underlying point and that's the underlying basis of Yaqueda agency dignity empowerment and having the choice of how to spend the money and the the, the funds that you're getting that's that's so powerful and i think uh you know you you mentioned how like this was an idea just a few years ago and now you know you've brought it and your team has brought it to reality uh, it's amazing to see and for our listeners yakira uh um yakira.net um just check you know please please visit that there's a section for the campaigns that are going out uh, that directly can support people uh, on things like getting a person a sewing machine or helping a person repair the bus, uh, you know, that for, for these individuals is so important. And, you know, can on some, on some occasions mean the difference between uh, life and death and roles. Just so, so amazing that you, you've put in the work uh, to do it. Uh, it's, it's an amazing privilege for me to chat with you. Um, I think this is an interesting uh, time to bring up the Venezuelan Bolivar, the, the currency of Venezuela. It hasn't been uh, the most stable currency. Can you tell us about uh, what, what exactly is happening with it? Uh, what are some of the challenges people have using it? Um, and how potentially uh, other currencies and potentially cryptocurrencies can, can help uh, alleviate the usage of the Venezuelan Bolivar. Specifically in the, in the Venezuelan currency, um, the Venezuelan currency is continuously depreciating. Right now, uh, a dollar is over 3 million Bolivars. And that's after the Venezuelan currency has dropped five zeros in the past 12 years. So uh, just to prevent that effect or that, that image of the Venezuelan Bolivars being having the same bills as Zimbabwe uh, when they had uh, hyperinflation, they've just decided to convert the currency. So we're in the third currency in the past 12 years. So first it was Bolivars and 
uh, strong bolivars, actually. They were called strong bolivars, and they actually depreciated so much during that time. Right now, we are in the sovereign bolivars. So it's a, it's a, it's a third one in a while. And just to, to give people a little bit of the, 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 the background and what this means for everyday people, uh, right now, there's not that much currency going around. Even though the amounts and, and the inflation keeps on going, people don't have that much cash. So the, the economy has certainly digitized a lot and, and people, this means that people have to have access to a bank account, to a debit card, to be able to make simple payments. Uh, but it's, it's very hard for people to do that all the time. Um, credit cards, credit lines are, are insignificant. Um, and just to give people a grasp of what it was a couple of years ago, at least when people still had bills and, and were able to pay with bills. So in the cheese shop that my mom still operated then, and, and even before I left to go to UOLC, you had to weigh the bolivars. You didn't have time to count them. Like you didn't have to count them because it was so much that you knew that one bill was about either 0.10 or one gram, like 0.10 grams or one gram. So you knew that you, if you weighted it, you had, you had the equivalent of that currency and you saw that it was the same sort of bills, you had to weight it and then you gave. So imagine like 400 grams of cheese was about a kilo of Venezuelan bolivars. So this is insane. Like this is something that the other day I was, I was watching a movie about the Venezuela a documentary um, called To the Streets that I actually would recommend it for, for people looking for more background into the Venezuelan situation. And I just remembered how it was that, that you had to weigh the bolivars to pay. So um, with the instability of the Venezuelan bolivar, people are transacting more and more in US dollars. And there's also crypto adoption. The crypto adoption in Venezuela is very, is very wide. Of course, it's not um, as widespread as people making uh, everyday payments in cryptocurrency. Um, for a while, there were some crypto wallets that were emerging. Uh, Dash was one of them. Uh, but the adoption wasn't as big as, as we initially thought. But, but people are still using cryptocurrency. I mean, when you have a continuously depreciating currency that, that depreciates and has, you have um, a million, millions of, of percent of inflation, crypto looks like a, a safe option because it's not regulated by the government. It doesn't have those regulations. You can send it across borders easily. So crypto has become a, a source of that. And the other thing that has happened is that a lot of these peer-to-peer wallets like RTM have emerged. Now there's another one um, also emerging in the country, which is now one of the most downloaded apps in Venezuela called Reserve. That's a new one that we don't necessarily work with at the moment, uh, but they are actually based in Silicon Valley and they are uh, a crypto um, company. And they have a similar system to, to RTM, but that doesn't necessarily deal with peer-to-peer uh, -peer transactions. So it, it occurs, the way it happens is a little bit differently, it's a little bit more direct, um, but um, all in all, uh, you know, Venezuelans have had to turn to these alternative mechanisms because even Venezuelan banks don't necessarily manage those payments in uh, US dollars. So people turn, to crypto, people turn to these e-wallets that sometimes have been banned by the regime, but that people still manage to have access to, to be able to conduct everyday transactions. Um, so this is a little bit of the reality because they, people need protection from inflation. People need protection from, from a continuously depreciating currency. 
So these are some of the things that people have turned to and, and, and the adoption of these currencies and, and these mechanisms has increased over the past year. It's just so, so, and thanks for all those examples. I think if you haven't seen it for, firsthand, it's hard to even understand what it means for a country to go through three iterations of a currency over 12 years, what it means for, um, for you to, you know, weigh, uh, weigh pieces of paper rather than count them. I mean, that's just, it, it's really crazy, but it, it, it goes a long way uh, for people to think about, you know, how we really put value and how we decide what is money and how much money is worth. Uh, that's just such a, such a stark example. And it's uh, quite, you know, quite, um, quite disturbing that this is, uh, this is a real thing. And this is a thing that people go through um, in their everyday life. Um, and um, I, I was curious, do you have any hopes or predictions in terms of, you know, what needs to change or how things might change in the future? for Venezuela to bounce back from where they are today to be in a better position? And is there any place for cryptocurrencies there, for blockchain to be there? Or is it more of a political question in your opinion? I think it's a combination of everything. Um, even with the regime uh, being in power uh, right now, the international sanctions have forced the regime, even though a lot of people criticize international sanctions, I, I do believe there are some parts of, of, of international sanctions that must be reevaluated, for sure, uh, especially the ones that target the country and don't necessarily target the individuals who are carrying out human rights violations. I think there are some that have to be rethought of. Uh, I don't think they are all useful to the same extent, but one positive result of international sanctions is that it's forced the regime to liberalize the economy to a certain extent, right? Of course, uh, you know, it's a, it, it, it's sort of like a cycle. Sometimes the regime does, you know, let a lot of economic activity occur without that much regulation. Then sometimes they crack down and in some businesses that, that might threaten their political power, that might threaten uh, um, their monopoly, state monopolies. But um, I do believe that there's been a, a liberalizing trend over the past year, um, year and a half that has been very positive for a lot of people in Venezuela. So even though right now there hasn't been political change, and I don't think a full-on recovery of the country and the country's infrastructure is going to happen without um, um, a different uh, um, political regime, I do believe that at the moment uh, there's been the international sanctions have forced um, for a, a greater opening of the economy that has, you know, improved some things for Venezuela. And so even though right now uh, the minimum wage is less than $3 per month, um, a lot of people now that that foreign currency is being used widely in the country, um, a lot of people have found uh, better paid jobs and, and have found uh, a way to make ends meet, even though the, the wages are still, uh, you know, very low and, and, and people are still enduring uh, a humanitarian crisis. Um, um, still though, like even though there's been some, some liberalization of the economy, the, the, the humanitarian catastrophe is, is incredible. Uh, we're talking uh, that by the end of this year, it's expected that uh, around 7 million people will have left the country. Um, so uh, we're talking about a country that has a population of 30 million, right? 
Um, and, and just like me leaving, not necessarily, in, you know, the status that I left was as a, as a student, but there's people, many people who've left in the, in, in the status as refugees, many people who have been just forced. And, and there's even, right now, there's something called caminantes, walkers, people who are walking from the Venezuelan border into Colombia and then walking to Peru, to Ecuador, to neighboring countries. And we're talking distances that the last time that I heard uh, such a similar trailer walk was in the independence of Venezuela in the 1800s, right? It's like people going through so much pain. And even right now, recently in the news, it's been um, uh, all over the news that Venezuelans are making their way to the southern border of the United States. And, and we're talking that you would have to go from Venezuela to Colombia to Panama uh, and, and, and and sometimes people are able to fly uh, to other parts, but then, then Panama, then all the other countries in Central America, Mexico, and then get to a border in the United States. So although do, some people do fly to get to, to Mexico and then uh, make their way to, to a border, what, what I'm saying is that, you know, it's a, it's a crisis that's forcing a lot of people to leave. And though now the liberalization, the relative liberalization of the economy has allowed some pockets of, of prosperity or some elites to, to be more prosperous than before, uh, generally uh, in the country, things are, are, are still not going well. Uh, and people are still in need of support, are in need, are need of humanitarian assistance, are in need of economic opportunities. Um, and that is where Yaqueda comes to play. Um, um, and, and we can talk more about this, but that, that's the space that Yaqueda wants to do. It's to help people uh, um, um, recover, to help people have more opportunities. And it goes as you see in the campaigns, it goes from education to uh, small businesses to healthcare because we believe that it's not, you know, you know, humanitarian aid or, or international support and, and crowdfunding shouldn't just be about the immediate needs, but also about how can we have a sustainable impact in people's lives and how can we actually support small businesses and people who are who are struggling to make ends meet but but are putting all the work in Venezuela in, in such an environment, in such a catastrophic environment. Just to imagine that you have to leave everything behind because your government fails you um, and you have to go on a trek that it's hard to even imagine. Uh, we're not talking about going from New York City to Philadelphia. We're talking, I, I, I was looking at the flight before and it looks like Venezuela to Mexico is about a five hour flight. So even just uh, uh, unbelievable to imagine uh, the, the, the pain and uh, the things people have to go through because of an unstable government and them not being able to uh, su support their, their people. As we close out here, Raul, uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity to um, tell our listeners how to best uh, get involved and, and help people uh, in Venezuela, uh, whether it's through donations, whether it's through social media, what is the best way for uh, people um, to get engaged? Yeah, uh, I mean, just to tell you, I, I think the best they can do right now is go to Yakera. Uh, it's uh, Y-A-K-E-R-A.net. Um, and then donate, check out the campaigns, read people's stories, read people's stories in their own words, and you'll get a glimpse as to what it's like to live in Venezuela, what it's like to, to go through through the situations that a lot of people have. And just to tell you, and the impact that Venezuela, that, that Yaquera can have in Venezuela and, and even in the rest of the region is huge. Just to tell you one of the stories, um, 
that that is featured in the in the side. Uh, Ivana Duran, she she migrated to Peru because you know of the situation in Venezuela, and 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 she was having a really hard time making its ends meet. And and once she was in Peru, her son got very sick, got very sick, and she couldn't work anymore because because her son was really really fighting between life and death, and and they didn't have the resources to stay in Peru and pay for any sort of medical treatment, so they had to return and, and go back to Venezuela. And she was traveling, she was making less than $10 a month, and she was making cakes by hand that she was selling in her community with $130, just $130 that, that relatively is not that much here in the United States. She was able to buy a mixer that now she can use to make three times the amount of cakes that she was making. Um, and that's that's a huge impact. I, I actually called her and, and we have one of the recently uploaded um, um, uh, videos in, in Yaquera and you can also follow us on social media at Yaquera underscore VE, um, at Yaquera underscore VE. Uh, it's, you know, the call that I was, that I was calling her to tell her that her campaign had been funded. And wow, uh, you know, the way that she was reacting, the way and, and, and that within a couple of days, she was able to buy what she needed. And now she's, her business is growing. Now she's able to sell more cakes. Uh, and, and, and that that is significant. Uh, there's other small businesses, there's other stores, there's kids that had medical conditions, uh, deformities in, in their knees, and now they're able to go to the doctor. Like those are real stories of real people. Uh, and, and the vision that I see for Yaquera and, and what we want to build it's not only a place for, for Venezuelans, but also for Venezuelan migrants in, in Colombia. We actually had a couple of campaigns that operated out of Colombia, but we don't only see it from Venezuela. There are other people in, in, in other parts of Latin America who also need support um, and, and that need a place where they can tell their stories. And, and this is something that no other crowdfunding site is, is solving, right? If you look at uh, some of the competitors, um, you have 18 countries and mainly the United States and Europe. Um, there are others that are just focused on, on the areas where there are the most resources. And I think the competitive edge of Yaquera is not the other crowdfunding sites couldn't just like open it and then and then suddenly the, the issues would be solved. But what we're trying to build at Yaquera and it's something we're going to be working on a lot this summer is to build a community of donors here in the United States and in other countries that connect the people in need who don't necessarily have the networks or connections that, that people here with a crowdfunding campaign could have here in the United States, but connecting the people in need with communities of donors, people who are willing to put their birthdays, who are willing to put the money that they would get for a celebration uh, or, or raising money because they're doing a race, they're doing a run, they're doing something and, and build that community of people who are willing to donate and who can choose the campaigns of where their money is gonna go to, who can choose that, you know, they're gonna support people like Ivana Duran, that was the story that I was telling you about, who want to support the kid Ricardo, uh, the, the one that I was telling you the story about. So, uh, you know, making that connection between people who are willing to support uh, Venezuelans and Latin Americans um, through the, the current crisis and, and with, with, with uh, you know, the, the people who need, who need support. So um, that's, that's a vision, that's a way forward. Yaquera means gratitude in the Venezuelan indigenous language Warao, and that's what we want to build, a network where people can express gratitude, can have their own voices, can express their own needs, and can receive support that they can then choose how to use to make 
to meet their needs. Very exciting. I think as as you, you as as you work through some of the challenges of how to implement Akira into uh, to be to be a, maybe a household name or or to connect to places where people raise money already, um, I, I think that will be such a big leap uh, for you and the Akira team. Um, and then going forward, just the fact that you know, like hundred percent of the donations go to the people for them to buy a mixer or, or, or buy whatever they need for the school is, it's just, it's just so heartwarming. Um, and again, Raul, thanks so much for joining us uh, for, for this week's episode. There's certainly a lot of, um, a lot of common themes uh, as far as how, how, how a, a decentralized way of distributing money um, could, could potentially impact so many people. Um, and again, wanted to say thanks for joining us. Thank you.